Shooting Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. This is going to be an amazing episode. I finally got to do Jack Parsons, who is one of the guys that I just find absolutely intriguing for many different levels. But just to give you a quick synopsis, because obviously the point of the episode is to get into greater detail, but quickly, he was essentially the United States' first rocket scientist. He was into rockets when they were kind of considered a joke. He had these grandiose ideas of getting off the planet, going to the moon and other uh, and other planets in our solar system. And he essentially propelled, no pun intended, this science, this budding field into the next uh, phase of its life and, and give it a, an air of legitimacy. Not only that, which is enough, but he also had this very strange interest in the occult, in magic, the teachings of Aleister Crowley. Uh, and this is at the time when L.A. is in, in the film noir kind of era. we got the Depression going on. So it's a very interesting time period in Los Angeles, in the United States. And not only that, he's also a part of this, this growing science fiction world that's happening all around him. Just an interesting guy. Rubbed elbows with with lots of greats, including L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, just a fascinating individual. And I've got an even more fascinating individual who's going to talk to me about him. George Pendle is an author, wrote the great book Strange Angel, which documents the very interesting life of Jack Parsons. And not only that, George has a lifelong mission to document every piece of carpeting you will find in airports around the world. Hopefully he'll stick around for an extra bonus episode about that because we will not have time. we got too much to talk about with Jack Parsons. George, thank you so much for being on the show today. First of all, I have to ask you the important question. Uh, do you like Mr. Pendle, George, Georgie Porgy, uh, <laughs> the pen because you're a writer? What do you like? Um, I'm very good. I, you know, I never... Um, yeah, just George is fine, you know. Okay, that's boring. But we'll we'll go with that. I may come up with something. Oh, you call me, you know, okay. Grand Liege, you know. Yeah. Like um, but uh, no, I, I mean, you know, uh, George Pendle. Uh, I mean, whatever whatever is comfortable for you will be fine for me. So now I'll just call you GL for Grand Liege. Uh, <laughs> so now, now you're kind of a, you're kind of a guy with a wide spectrum of interests. Jack Parsons was kind of a white guy with a wide spectrum of interest. I mean, is that why you were kind of drawn to him? Well, um, possibly. I mean, I, I've always liked, uh, you know, writing about people who are on the edge of things, who are, who are kind of uh, somehow draw together two worlds or, or, mm. or kind of uh, have been ignored, but for the wrong reasons. Um, sure. <laughs> and so so I try and I, I love kind of discovering these people who've, who've who are kind of literally more brave than I am, but who've, who've stuck their neck out. And for some reason, it's been chopped off. And I try and kind of attach it back to the body of history again. <laughs> sure. Um, so. So that that's really, uh, I mean, I don't think I'm, I'm like Jack Parsons anyways, but I, I like the idea of, you know, I do have lots of different interests and I try and combine them all into some kind of coherent, you know, kind of working life. Um, so, so I read about, you know, I often find in science, that's where you often get these kind of stories where people are interested in two, what seem like opposite things yet can be combined mm -hmm. when you look at it in the right way into a, actually a very cohesive whole, um, so, yeah, so, you know, I, I read uh, recently about, um, for instance, like a, a quantum uh, a physicist who's at, at the top of his field at the moment, who is also very interested in conceptual art. And so uh, between the two of them, you, you'd think they'd be very different, but actually you can kind of draw these great parallels between the, between the disciplines. Um, so so that's, that's kind of uh, what I like doing. I like kind of, you know, uh, that, that's really it. I, I like rediscovering these people who, who've been kind of lost I, I kind of felt like Parsons, he was, he was a kind of person who was desperately trying to bring two worlds together and trying to bring other people, you know, together to, to appreciate that these two worlds could be combined in some right. way. 
Um, yeah. Well, and I think, you know, there are two cool things I want to talk about. But first of all, let's get the definition of a rocket, because that kind of plays a central role here, just the, like what a rocket is and what the attitude towards rockets was before Parsons and then post Parsons. Right. Okay. So I guess you could say a rocket is a is a kind of vehicle um, that obtains uh, you know thrust from a kind of rocket engine. Uh, the rocket engine is something in which uh, a fuel and an oxidizer uh, kind of combine and burn and, and pr- provide thrust. I mean, it's it's a very simple uh, kind of a thing. It's really something which provides thrust to move uh, the vehicle forward. Um, and in a rocket, thrust goes out of the back. And uh, and that propels the rocket forward. Um, it, it's really down to, uh, uh, I think, Newton's second law of motion, which is that every action should have an equal and opposite reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was so going to say third law, but I think you're right. It, oh, it might so, be the second one. Second law? <laughs> it's definitely not the first. I think we can both yeah. agree it's not the first. Um, but uh, no, I think you're right. Sorry, it's third law. Um, but uh, that's really how it works. Um, it's really because... Uh, uh, the the chemicals, the thrust coming out of the back, uh, kind of propels the rocket forward, and it's it's a really basic thing, but it's very 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 complicated to create. Um, and you know, rockets have been around for millennia. They were first founded, you know, we think around kind of a thousand AD in China, uh, and they were just used as as kind of fireworks and as very basic weapons. I think there are descriptions of people tying uh, kind of bamboo containers stuffed with, you know, what is basically gunpowder um, and, uh, and tying these to spears or to arrows uh, and then firing these at, at, at rival troops. And it wasn't really to, to kill the rival troops. It was really to scare them because you'd have this whizzing thing with sparks shooting out of it, flying through the air. Um, and so you'd have rockets, you know, back a thousand years ago, but for literally 900 years, they hadn't advanced from that point. I mean, rockets crop up in the Middle Ages. Uh, you see them crop up during, uh, you know, uh, the War of 1812 here in America, uh, where the Star Spangled Banner comes from. Yeah, you know, it mentions the rocket's red glare. Those are the English oh, rockets right. yeah. firing through the air. Uh, and so you have these very basic kind of um, devices, which are, you know, made out of bamboo or made out of metal in the War of 1812, stuffed full of gunpowder and lit and flying through the air, completely unguided. They may explode on launch. They may never explode. Um, but they were kind of really to, to, to set fire to things. They were kind of uh, incendiary, incendiary uh, devices. Now, I do want to pop in here really quickly and mention one thing that I found really interesting is that in 1815, you say that every almost every major military had a rocket division. Mm-hmm. And, and like you said, they were kind of like unpredictable arrows in a way. It was like arrows 2.0, but you couldn't really predict where they went. They weren't very accurate and they weren't really necessarily to kill. But I found it amazing that everyone was working on these things at one point. Yeah, it, it is interesting. And it seems like everybody was, you know, thought that this was going to be the next thing. And even though it'd been centuries, uh, everybody thought, well, they have a rocket division, we need a rocket division. Right. And I, I really think there was that the, the terror angle should not be underestimated. And also that the, just the ability to set fire to things. I mean, this was uh, a time when, you know, setting fire to a, a city or town was very easy. Most of the buildings were made of wood. Uh, it was, you know, it could cause great destruction, even if you didn't hit exactly the point you wanted to hit. Um, but then with the advances in, in cannons and with artillery, um, with rifles and guns, they really fell by the wayside. Uh, people realized that they kind of were these uncontrollable devices. And so I think by the mid-19th century, most of those rocket divisions had kind of fallen by the wayside and been replaced by artillery divisions. Uh, and so by the turn of the 20th century, uh, they're really not thought about anymore as, as, as other than something from the distant past. Uh, maybe they're, uh, you know, the, pers- the only person who's really thinking about them in any kind of depth uh, are the science fiction writers. They're the ones who, who still believe that the rocket, if we're going to go anywhere, uh, you know, into outer space, the rocket is probably the best bet for it. But of course, nobody in science and, you know, nobody in, in the military thought that that was the case. Right. Just fiction writers, which wasn't even called science fiction at the time. It was a scientification or what was it? it was... I, I think scientification. Scientification, that's it. Scientification was, uh, was the term in the late Victorian, early 20th century for 
basically tales of fantasy with a scientific element. Um, and that's really what H.G. Wells and Jules Verne uh, and even some, uh, you know, Edgar Allan Poe stories were. Uh, you know, they had these uh, these scientist heroes who would, you know, in very great depth, these authors wrote about the science. They, they would describe a kind of scientific advance and then, you know, kind of work it to its logical or illogical conclusion. Mm, uh, right. Not unlike today. People do yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but really that. rockets, you know, but by the time Jack Parsons was, was uh, kind of thinking about making rockets, it was seen as only for science fiction writers. Uh, and like nobody in science was thinking rockets were a serious thing. It was seen, and science fiction itself wasn't seen as a serious literature. It was seen as a literature for kids. Right. Uh, so, you know, from being part of armies a hundred years before, uh, it had become this kind of kids kind of plaything, this, this imaginative kind of dead end, uh, so to speak. Well, and, and, this, and this is just one of several weird and amazing things about this story. I hope we get to them all because there's, there's, there's a lot packed in here. So because you, you have like this this weird attitude towards rockets um, and then along comes Jack Parsons. And I got to tell you, I love the way, you know, this isn't a spoiler alert because it's the first thing you do in the prologue to the book. But much like Sunset Boulevard, you started off with Jack Parsons blowing himself up, which is probably the greatest ending to this story. I know that's tragic, and this is a real person, so I do understand that. I'm not callous to that. But as far as a story goes, it is the craziest ending that you could have to this man's life. Um, and you put it at the beginning, and was there a reason for that? Are you a fan of Sunset Boulevard? Yeah, the Sunset Boulevard, I'm very glad you brought that up. It wasn't uh, lost on me that that was a similar device used. I mean, the thing about Parsons is his story is such a kind of Californian story, such an L.A. story, really, uh, because it is just filled with so many bizarre and kind of uh, oblique turns. Um, it kind of felt in some way like that kind of Sunset Boulevard, you know, uh, like the film itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, exactly. But uh, but uh, the reason was to put it at the front. It, it's that I didn't want to really turn this into a kind of you know who done it and and what happened. I wanted to get it out at the front, and also it just seemed like that was the way that most people learnt about Parsons. It was through his death. It was the fact that he was uh, you know a, a rocket scientist who had mystical kind of interests who had died in an explosion, uh, and it seemed. You know, it seemed you couldn't make it up. If you made it up, it would seem too pat. It would seem too on the nose. You know, a rocket scientist who blows himself up. You know, it's, right. It's, yeah. It, yeah. It, it, it's 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 silly. It fits so well into the story. And and again, I, you know, it is a real person's life. But so much about his life uh, it, it seems it seems invented. Um, and that was one of the reasons for writing the book. I mean, a lot of. When I, when I started writing it, there was a lot of rumor. There was a lot of hearsay. There were only a few people scattered around who were really holders of the flame, um, so to speak. And, and my idea was to kind of pick through all these stories and try and piece together like, uh, uh, who the real man was and how he could have existed. And kind of starting at, at the end of his life, when with his death and when the papers picked it up and they were saying, ah, oh, he was a mad scientist, he was this, that, you start with all those rumors and then you can kind of delve into his life and pick them apart and find out, you know, where the truth was. Um, and so that's really why I started with it, I guess. Well, and that's a great, you know, and also I did, I did love the book, by the way, and I'm going to make some <laughs> great comparisons for you, GL. The second one is that, you know, much like Citizen Kane, you have this event that happens and essentially his story unfolds through people questioning things that were going on in his house where they, where the hole was ripped through. Mm -hmm. um, and what's actually great is when I finish the book, as I finish every book that I read, uh, you it ends at like 5 p.m. and then the book ends and then you realize if you go back to the beginning, the prologue starts at 5.08 when the explosion happens. And right. it's this great cycle. I, I really like that. Um, <laughs> but, but, so you have these questions being asked and that's kind of how all this stuff you know, kind of comes about. I love that device. And also that throughout the entire story, 
Molina's um, Frank Molina, who's who's one of the Suicide Squad, uh, mm-hmm. he kind of is narrating the story through his letters to his parents, mm-hmm. uh, which I found that really interesting. Did you get a hold of all of them, or or how did that happen? Yeah, I I, I was in touch with uh, with Frank Molina uh, with his family, um, with his his wife who lives in Paris, uh, and with his son who is himself a distinguished scientist, um, and uh, I got a lot of the letters from him. Um, or from their archive uh, in Paris. And that's it's an interesting thing because Parsons himself, he didn't leave a lot of paper behind. He, he, a lot of this stuff was destroyed in the explosion, which, which took his life. A lot was destroyed by his uh, second wife uh, after, shortly after his death. So really, you mentioned the Citizen Kane analogy, and really it is that kind of thing. It's, you have all these different people from all these different spheres, you know, from the occult world, from the world of science, from the world of science fiction. And they're all telling the story about the same man. And yet you wonder how it can all work together. And it's really piecing it together. I mean, I don't know if I, I, I found a rosebud. I mean, if there was a rosebud, it was, <laughs> it was clearly in front of me the whole time. And it was the kind of, it was the moon, you know, just mm-hmm. shining there. And, and right. that kind of combined all his interests, you know, his science, his, his science fiction, his, uh, his occult work. Um, mm-hmm. It was all there hanging in the sky above him. Yeah. That's a uh, that's a pretty uh, astute observation. That's exactly right. That did kind of unite all of his interests, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, I, 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 he was from what Parsons did leave us, um, which is which is fascinating and intriguing stuff. He always he's very honest. It seems in his letters, he always says, you know, I all I want to do is get to the moon. When he's writing to his you know his rocket scientist friends, I just want to get to the moon. I want to travel into space. And when he's writing to his occult friends, he's just, he's equally open. He's saying, I want to transcend. I want to leave the earth. I want to, you know, see these other beings, you know, from other worlds, from other dimensions. And it's the same kind of will to escape, you know, to, to kind of transcend the earth um, that, you know, you can see kind of combining these worlds together. That's what he found uh, that linked them together. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it is true to talk about a link um, and a callback. Quantum physics is essentially like magic because a lot of the rules, especially the broad the broad things without getting down into the minutia of quantum physics, but it, it's all magic. I mean, quantum entanglement is very strange, you know, the, um, <laughs> and how, how one particle can affect a, a particle, you know, an infinite amount of distance away. And then it, they're somehow connected across the universe, like by some fundamental reason i mean that doesn't make any sense it's it is just like magic so it, a lot of it does make sense because scientists are always searching for the answers to the question to the unanswerable you know to mm-hmm. the weird things around them um, but, but let, let's talk about jack parsons early life and how he got into rockets like wh- where did this whole thing start so it really started uh back when uh, he was a young boy uh around about the age of 11, 12. He was growing up in Pasadena. He was uh, living with his mother and his grandfather. uh, And he was living in a fairly wealthy kind of neighborhood. Um, But he was a bit of a loner. He was kind of a spoiled young kid. Uh, He, you know, put on airs at that age, um, which didn't make him terribly popular with the other kids. Uh, But at that time, uh, there came this uh, great kind of breakthrough in his life uh, and in the life of many scientists at the time uh, of young budding scientists, which was uh, the arrival uh, of Amazing Stories, which was one of the first pulp science fiction uh, kind of magazines. And uh, in those pages, I think he really kind of first found, you know, to kind of urge the will to go to, to other worlds to discover them. Um, I think it was it was through science fiction that he first kind of really kind of wanted to, 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 to become a rocket scientist. I mean, curiously enough, both he and Frank Molina, his closest friend in what became the Suicide Squad, both mentioned reading Jules Verne very early on, uh, from the earth to the moon in particular. Uh, and, uh, it's really through literature that, uh, they first got, first got their kind of longing to become a rocket scientist. Hmm. And, and it was also kind of his precocious nature that got him beat up a lot in how he met one of his other best friends, um, Ed Foreman. That's right. Uh, he was, uh, you know, Parsons was going to school. He was carrying these science fiction magazines under his arm. He was, uh, 
this kind of you know at the time as it does just asking for a beating right (laughs) kind of you know he was the 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 archetypal nerd in some ways you know (laughs) he was there in the playground carrying these magazines people were like what are you thinking about what are you talking about you you crazy loon and you know a bully picked on him and started punching him and he was getting you know the crap beaten out of him when suddenly somebody puts their hand on the bully's shoulder, pulls the bully off, and punches the bully in the face, breaking the bully's nose. And before Jack Parsons, you know, can clear the dust from his eyes, a hand's reaching out and picking him up. And that's Ed Foreman. And Ed Foreman would be his friend for the rest of his life. They would work on rockets together. They would read science fiction together. And, uh, you know, they would uh, live a, a kind of, you know, bizarre occult life together um so uh that was really the longest friendship of his life and and those three people we'll get to them in a little more detail but um those three people ended up making the core of the suicide squad who throughout the journey the journey of rocket science these three guys were always involved and together and were the core group of this endeavor that's right. They, they were kind of split into three uh, different parts. You had Jack Parsons, who was, who was kind of the chemist who kind of invented all the, the rocket fuels. Uh, you had Ed Foreman, who built the rockets themselves. And you had Frank Molina, who was kind of the mathematical brain behind it, who came up with the equations that were necessary to kind of construct these rockets and get the thrusts right and so on. Um, and so the three of them complemented each other brilliantly, both kind of professionally and also kind of personally. They each had different characters which bounced off each other. Jack, you know, had his, you know, fantastical occult leanings. Uh, Melina was this kind of union organizer, a kind of with communist kind of uh, a communist past. And Ed Foreman was this kind of wild guy, um, you know, who who didn't care too much about the occult, didn't care too much about politics, uh, but was very loyal to the other two and kept them together as a kind of glue. So the three of them were really the basis for the Suicide Squad. Yeah, it's like a band, you know, almost like the Beatles exactly. minus Ringo. You know, I mean, it's like yeah. all these guys complement each other and there's you can't create that kind of chemistry, no pun intended. Exactly. So you also mentioned in the book that early on, Jack Parsons had a weird mystical experience where he tried to summon a demon. How early on was that and how did it affect him? Well, I think it was around the age of 12, 13 again. Uh, he had... Uh, from what I can gather, he'd been reading about that time, lots of myths, lots of, you know, the Faustus legend. Uh, and, you know, he's a 12-year-old boy. He's trying crazy stuff. Some kids smoke cigarettes. He tried to summon up the devil. <laughs> sure. You know, so, right, right. Uh, so from what we can gather, from what he wrote about it later, you know, he we're not quite sure what kind of ritual he did. I imagine it was what a 12-year-old boy would come up with, kind of maybe looking in a mirror, chanting the devil's name. <laughs> sure. or, uh, you know, something like that. But whatever happened, uh, Jack Parsons later in life said he succeeded (laughs) and it scared him and it put him off doing any kind of magic like that again for years. Uh, Now, you know, when you're 12 years old, you can really freak yourself out in a dark room, dark corridor. Uh, Who knows how much truth there was in it? But it certainly planted the seed, even though he says it scared him away from it for some time. The whole idea that by going through some kind of process, you know, like a scientific process, you know, it would lead to a result, uh, you know, whether it's mm-hmm. it's a fly or getting the, the devil to appear, I think really appealed to him, that kind of process, the, the, the whole causation aspect of it. Right. And I think, you know, as with anyone, early successes can breed a drive for it later on in life. And, you know, that, <laughs> that so I found that that seed to be very interesting. <laughs> yes, indeed. And, and there's also one other thing I want to talk about, which is slightly unrelated, but completely related, which is you tell a story of... Um, Robert Goddard. And mm-hmm. why this is interesting is because he was working on, there are a lot of people working on rockets, but as, you know, as we talked about, no one was taking them seriously. And he was writing all kinds of um, essays on how you could use flash powder to get to the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he gets humiliated in the papers because no one takes him seriously. And then he ends up moving to Roswell, New Mexico. Like, <laughs> what are the right. odds of that? Yeah, it's uh it's certainly one of the many weird coincidences that you get uh, in Parsons' story. I often think like Parsons is the hub of a wheel, and you know, going off from him is everything uh, yeah. from you know from science fiction to like you know alien intervention to conspiracy theories to I mean everything comes off him. Um, but yes, no, that happens to Robert Goddard. He he was he, he used to you know he had previously been working in Massachusetts making these rockets all by himself, really without any help from anybody else. Uh, and he was humiliated by 
not least the New York Times in 1921, I think it was, who said, this guy's a crackpot. He thinks we can actually go into outer space. You know, what a nutter. And, and he's getting funding for this, you know. Uh, and Goddard was so humiliated that he just took himself off to the desert. And who knows, maybe, you know, <laughs> maybe uh, started a whole new thing down in the desert, which led sure. to Roswell, weirdly, uh, the Roswell myth growing up around us. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, and I like the hub of a wheel analogy because another spoke off this are th- – because there were two groups really working on rockets at the time. And the second group was a, a very serious group in Germany, one of those people being Werner von Braun. Ed and Jack ended up working up a correspondence with him, obviously before the Nazi party took over. But that that was, I found that fascinating. Yeah, it, it was, what you have to remember and what's easy to forget is that these guys were like 16, 17, 18. You know, they, they, were, they were young kids and they had started up these, you know, there were various rocket societies around the world, but it was mainly like teenagers doing it. Um, it's it's hard to imagine. And it was all, uh, they used to share basically their information with each other. They'd send letters. The, the German rocket society would send a letter to the American rocket society saying, hey, we tried this and it worked, you know. And this is in, you know, the, the late 1920s, early 1930s, before the rise of, of, of the Nazis, before the Nazis really took over, I guess. Um, but these guys were enthusiasts, and, and in many ways, it mirrors the science fiction kind of crowd. Uh, many of them read science fiction, but this whole idea that there were little pockets of kind of young guys sharing stories, sharing experiments, uh, and not least were, was Werner von Braun, who was, you know, again, 16, 17, uh, working on rockets in Germany. And from what I understand, they actually had a phone call. Parsons and, and Werner von Braun, you know, had phone calls together, you know, long distance, oh, wow. obviously. Um, you know, sharing their details of, of their rocket experiments. Uh, it was, it's a very strange thing when, you know, the leading minds in a science are in their teens. I guess the closest would be, you, <laughs> right, you know, yeah. like, like the internet maybe, or, or like, you know, yeah. Steve Jobs in the 70s perhaps, or the computer generation. That, that's the closest analogy I've been able to think about when science is driven by juvenile delinquents. <laughs> that's right. it. Well, even the um, internet age, you look at Facebook and YouTube, the guys who are doing well, those were exactly, know, exactly. early 20s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's often those guys who they don't know anything. You know, with rocketry, there was no science behind it. But also when you're a teenager, you don't give a damn about what's happened before. You, you're, you're experimenting every day. You know, that's your right. life. Yeah. And I mean, and their connection becomes really important later on. Uh, but but that's kind of they were the only two people working on this, which I found really interesting and kind of to supplement because Jack Parsons had kind of a, a strange from an educational standpoint, because he didn't finish school. He didn't, wasn't college educated, which ended up giving him, you know, no matter what his accomplishments were, that was always a roadblock for him. And I think always a reason that he felt uh, that he needed, had a need to feel superior. Uh, but, but what happened there? Like w- w- he was going to school and then what happened? Yeah, that's right. He, he was always, you know, getting into trouble at school. So he, he, was either, he was either being bullied or he was causing enough trouble to get expelled from schools. Uh, and despite this, he was, you know, a smart guy. He was an intelligent guy. He was accepted uh, actually into Stanford. But at exactly that moment, the depression happened and his family fortunes were hit. I think his grandfather died about that time. Uh, and he had to start earning money to, you know, look after his mother. And so he was no longer allowed, he couldn't go to Stanford, and he started working at an explosives company. Uh, and really, you know, that was always the kind of chip on his shoulder, the fact that he'd never gone to, to university. He ended up at Caltech because he and uh, Ed Foreman had been doing their experiments by themselves, their rocket experiments, and they realized they needed somebody who had university learning. And so literally they walked in the door at Caltech and said, is anybody working on rockets? And, you know, uh, eventually Frank Molino was unearthed from beneath the pile of papers, <laughs> uh, and, you know, and, and kind of ushered their way and said, you guys talk about your childish stuff. Yeah. But, but, you know, I think that's right. I think that the fact that he never went to university it was not only a kind of chip on Jack Parsons' shoulder, but it was also a way in which his legacy was, you know, able to be covered up in some way, that his personal life was able to be kind of whitewashed, uh, right. you know, in some way, because he wasn't a university man. He had none of the qualifications you're meant to have as a scientist. Right. Uh, he came at it from a completely, you know, often non-scientific angle, uh, you know, or like without the, the backing of science. So uh, I think it's, 
that in some ways helped his rocketry. Again, you know, he didn't have to listen to any, he wasn't held back by any teaching. He wasn't held back by any, you know, perceived, uh, you know, learning. Uh, but, you know, in some ways it also, you know, it cost him. It cost him his legacy as kind of one of the founders of American rocketry. And I found, I think that was the, the thing that was most puzzling to me while I was reading the story is, is just how kind of weird the, the winds of fate can kind of blow once in a while. Because in some stories, you can have a guy with a similar background to Jack Parsons who's kind of thrust into the limelight and becomes a superstar despite the fact that they don't have the education. And in a lot of ways, he was a genius who invented this feel. I mean, essentially invented, invented the scientific field that we're still using today. Mm-hmm. And he is just, you know, kind of swept under the rug. And I, I never really, I mean, I, I guess because of the time period, maybe all of the occult stuff, which we have yet to get into. Um, but I think that maybe played a part in it. But I was really struggling to find out because depending on your level of celebrity uh, or scientific or intellectual ability, people forgive a lot. <laughs> or, or, or athletic ability, I should throw that in there as well. Like people right. forget a lot, you know what I mean? And I found that very strange with him. Well, I think it's the difference between starting a science and continuing, continuing it. Um, I think Parsons, you know, he was really necessary to kind of get it moving and to get people to take it seriously. But once he got the ball rolling, he wasn't really necessary anymore. Like mm. it became a, a fully, you know, uh, kind of a fully taken up science it, it had book you know literature about it it had equations written about it and while parsons got the ball rolling he wasn't really necessary once it started picking up speed so to speak um and i think that was kind of even though he did all hard work of basically kind of dragging the science out of you know kids literature and into actuality you know I, once it was there he could be ignored you know even though he had this brilliance there were other people who could do a fairly good job doing it, you know, making rockets, making rocket fuel. And, you know, he was supplanted in some ways, even though everything was built on his shoulders. Um, so I think that's the kind of guy he was. He's the kind of guy who, who, get, who, who has the imagination to get a science started. But once it started, isn't necessary anymore. You know, he's, especially when a science is taken up by, you know, what is basically the military industrial complex. And uh, that kind of complex doesn't allow, you know, for people who aren't really you know, straight arrows. Yeah, no, that's true. I thought you were going to say people who, um, it only requires people who are necessary and that is absolutely <laughs> not true, but, but people right. are straight yeah, arrows. That does, that is <laughs> yeah. completely accurate. So let's, so let's fast forward a little bit. So they've done, so he's worked with Frank Molina. They have a connection to Caltech. They're doing all kinds of experiments. Uh, they've actually kind of, you know, through their celebrity and through their the unique nature of their experiments, uh, and in the book you mentioned there's like explosions going you know all over the place on the on the campus in, in Caltech. They kind of attract a couple other people: Apollo Smith, uh, Quinn Luce. Uh, how do you say it? Cyan? How do you say his last name? I, I say Cien. Cien, yeah. which I thought was interesting. He's a she was a Chinese student from from China, <laughs> uh, which well, most Chinese students are from China, um, and he was descended <laughs> from a 10th century emperor, which. That that's how do you trace that back? I mean, that's <laughs> well, that's what he claimed. Uh, Tian, uh, you know, was a very, uh, by all accounts, he was a very kind of haughty individual. Uh, he came into Caltech thinking he knew everything, and most people agree he did. Uh, but he, you know, he didn't suffer fools gladly, and everybody else to him was a fool. And and I think you know, uh, and part of this was due to the fact that he could trace his lineage, you know, back, you know, ten centuries. Um, sure. But uh, but he was, you know, a vital factor of, you know, the suicide squad, the expanded suicide squad. Right. Uh, like but, but, you know, but it started to it was when he came aboard, you know, the fractures started to appear within the suicide squad. It's when it started going from, you know, Parsons and Foreman's and Molina's kind of backyard experiments to becoming a little more serious. And as it became a little more serious, it became a little more unstable. So that, and that makes sense because um, the stakes are raised a little bit. Uh, and then one other member was Weld Arnold, which I always his his presence in the story is very strange because he kind of like wanders in, and he's their first benefactor. Really, he donates a thousand dollars, which I think That's in, right. in today's dollars is a billion dollars. I, I don't know. How much, I don't know what <laughs> the exchange rate is, but it's quite a bit. Yeah. And and so he comes in just to be the photographer. He never explains where he got the money, and he kind of wanders in the story and then kind of leaves the story. It, you know, kind of like this wandering mystic in a way. You know, it's very strange. Yeah, the, you know, 
basically the Suicide Squad were at a, a low ebb. They had no funding, even though they were kind of allowed to work at Caltech. They had no money behind them, no, you know, no no research funding. And suddenly, from out of the blue, this uh, graduate assistant who is you know, twenty years older than them turns up says he's heard of their rocket experiments and wonders if they'd like a thousand dollars to help them you know and this is the first funding they they ever get Uh, they've never met him before they haven't really heard about him before and when he turns up with the money it's all in one dollar and five dollar (laughs) bills and they're just (laughs) what is going on but they're so cautious they so don't want to blow this that they they don't ask any questions they just take all the money say thank you very much you can be our photographer and that's it (laughs) then they go to the authorities at caltech and say we have a fund, you know, can we start, you know, a rocket fund? Yeah, they're they're legit. That's it. Wow. And and so so that's kind of the the core group. Now, this is before they become the Suicide Squad. But there's a pretty cool story on how they get that name, which DC then stole and made a terrible movie out of. How did they get that title, that moniker? Okay, well, It all stems from their early experiments when they were building their early rockets, which actually took place in in the Arroyo Seco, which is the the dry river valley that kind of runs by Pasadena. Uh, They would build, uh, it's where JPL is actually, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory is now stationed on the very site of their early tests. Uh, They would build these rockets with basically liquid oxygen and uh, various fuels coming in. uh, And they would, you know, get them going and set a fuse and then light them and see what happened. And uh, more often than not, uh, these rockets would explode or their uh, hose would come loose and kind of shoot flame at them, setting fire to the, you know, the undergrowth. Uh, and these explosions were kind of a daily basis. It's hard to imagine. But when their experiments eventually came into Caltech, uh, you know, they were allowed to work on a small kind of concrete slab to the side of the aeronautics building. And, you know, this would happen every day. There'd be like an explosion, the kind of sandbagged area, which they hid behind would be blown apart. There'd be guys, you know, like in, like, like a in World War I bunker. Right? Yeah, 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 you know, with like hair sits. And all the other students are like, what the hell is going on out there? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's like a gnomish workshop. I mean, it, it honestly yeah. was like they'd pull off the goggles and their eyes would be clean and then there's the black soot all over their face, you know, hair blown back. I mean, that was exactly <laughs> it. You see pictures of them. And, you know, they, they, they would dress in like 1930s suits and ties with waistcoats and stuff. But yeah. everything about them would be like smudged and burnt and singed. And, and, still smoking and still burning. Still smoking. Right? Yeah. And they did – I mean, they, they, they scorched like all the grass on Caltech's main kind of, you know, quadrangle. Kind of, yeah, they scorched all brown. They, you know, covered all the uh, instruments in one of the buildings with rust with some – Kind of a cervic kind of a fuel that they used. It was really kind of very amusing to all the other students, I think. Um, but also just just a, a sign of how much they they were willing to commit to rockets. I mean, they were literally risking their life on a daily basis, blowing stuff up. I don't know how they avoided wildfires. I mean, you know, uh, it's it's so dry out there, and I, that like was surprised me after reading this. I mean, these guys were literally sh- shooting up unsanctioned explosives uh, into the air, and fire was raining down. How, how was the place not burned down? Well, it's so true. I mean, they may well have started really? one, but they just didn't own up to it. I, I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't really say about that. But yeah, I mean, it it was a it was a, a combustible time in their lives. I mean, really, uh, it was it was. It's fascinating when you go through all the old papers and see how many of their experiments just blew up in front of them. <laughs> right, and so that's how they got the moniker, the Suicide Squad, because they're always risking their life, which I love that. So they had a little bit of celebrity on. In, in Caltech, there were local celebrities, but there comes a moment, and I have to mention this because I love film noir, and we're entering into the 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 world uh, that the world of Los Angeles that kind of spawned uh, uh, noir, and that was Jack Parsons is kind of thrust into the national spotlight, uh, or at least the the state spotlight because he is called as an expert witness in a very political uh, case that was going on. That's right. Um, uh, at the time, L.A., uh, as we all know and love, was a great city of uh, iniquity and sin. Um, it was, you know, there were brothels, there were gambling dens. Uh, it was, you know, anything goes, period. And at the time, there were some uh, societies which were set up to try and rein this in, some kind of, you know, uh, prohibition kind of societies, some societies try and 
rained, you know, closed down on the corruption that was going on. And one of them was led by uh, this guy, Clifford Clifton, uh, who uh, ran a number of cafeterias in the city. And he was basically going head to head against Mayor Shaw, who was the corrupt head of LA at the time. And it so turns out that Clifton had a private detective looking into Shaw's businesses. And that private detective one day steps into his car, turns the ignition on and the car explodes. So classic. Classic right. film noir, you know, kind of down and dirty L.A. Yeah. Uh, so a court case is brought and it's brought against none other than the chief of police, who's called Earl Kinnett. And uh, Kinnett is under trial and they're trying to work out, you know, how the car bomb worked, what was going on, who could have planted it. And they go to Caltech and say, who is your top guy on explosives? And Caltech, to give them credit, say, look, nobody knows more about this than this 23-year-old guy who's blowing stuff up in our courtyard. And so Parsons (laughs) is kind of brought downtown in front of this crowd of photographers and is told to explain how a car bomb works and how it could be planted and what explosives were used. And, you know, his testimony uh, testimony was was incredibly important in basically convicting Al Kinnett and and in some ways starting to halt the kind of wave of corruption that was going on in LA so that was Parsons first kind of taste of national fame yeah I mean and that's pretty amazing that a 23 year old kid is the master of explosives I mean it's pretty cool that's another cool moniker the master of explosives <laughs> it's true it's not bad it's true and, and to tell the truth you know I think for Parsons it was a great uh, moment because even though he was working at Caltech, he wasn't really seen as one of the Caltech staff. And whenever articles were written about uh, the Suicide Squad by, say, the local Caltech newspaper, uh, they didn't include him or Foreman. Foreman wasn't at Caltech either. He was just working in Caltech. Uh, So suddenly Parsons trumps all his kind of other Caltech colleagues by appearing in these national newspapers as a a master of explosives. So. That's yeah. so. I mean, it is ridiculous that he, he never got credit for anything. That would drive me crazy. I'm just putting that on record, GL. That would drive me absolutely <laughs> bananas if I'm working there creating all these incredible explosives. I end up getting called in as an expert witness, and people still won't recognize me as a member of Caltech, uh, especially once I knew how to make car bombs. That might put a little of <laughs> the fear of God into people, right? Exactly, exactly. Uh, so, they, so they conquer that world, the world of explosives, and then the natural next step for anyone – is to write a, a screenplay for Hollywood, and that's and that's what they did. Explain how, how in an effort to raise funding, they tried to write a novel, and then how prophetic it ended up being. Yeah, I mean, it, the Suicide Squad was so short of cash that they tried their hand at pretty much everything to to gain money, and one of them was writing the screenplay, which yeah was uh, it was about a group of you know young young rocket scientists um, who uh, you know are trying to create uh, a rocket and. One of them is this guy interested in the occult, and one of them is a kind of communist sympathizer, and you know, basically totally mimicking uh, their their own roles in the Suicide Squad. Um, and it turns out, you know, that the rockets are, are being created by them, but Nazi scientists try and steal their rocket plans, and in the end, they have to destroy their own rocket to stop the Nazis. You know, it's and this is back in 1930. 334 you know it's at 35 maybe it's it's before really anybody knew about the nazi rocket plans and uh, and so that was very prophetic to begin with and and secondly there's the fact that one of the characters in uh, their screenplay goes ahead and kind of attacks the rocket uh, you know, with a with a wrench at some point, and he's the guy who's interested in the occult, and so on. He attacks the rocket and is blown up in this terrific explosion. And the fact that this kind of should mimic kind of Parsons' own death is is yeah. quite eerie in the end. Yeah, that is very strange. Uh, but it was I just love the fact that they were trying to sell to Hollywood because it's like what everybody does, and just <laughs> how you know it's it just it's one of those things where of course it's going to predict the future because that's the way this story is going so far. Yeah, uh, and, and so the next stage, you know, we're we're way into this interview. We haven't even gotten to the mysticism part of this yet, but this is where it enters in. It's nineteen thirty nine. Parsons ends up getting kind of talked into going to a Gnostic mass for the Church of Thelina. And this kind of like spins his life in a whole different direction. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, not only, you know, um, from a philosophical standpoint, but also the the people that he meets while going, while there and, and, you know, while kind of his ascension amongst the ranks. But let's talk about this first meeting. 
Right. So uh, Parsons is invited to uh, what's called the Gnostic Mass, uh, which is uh, this kind of ritual taking place in the house in Hollywood. Um, you know, at the time, like L.A. was filled with you know various kind of mystical, metaphysical uh, kind of clubs, you know, kind of uh, churches or whatever you want to call them. And uh, this one, which was hosted by the Ordo Templi Orientis, the OTO for short, uh, was the one that Parsons was was brought to. And you know, he climbed into this, the attic of this house and in there, everybody was formally dressed. There was a kind of black and white checker, checkerboard floor. And there on stage was a coffin uh, surrounded by candles and people performing this weird kind of rite that seemed kind of Victorian. It seemed Egyptian. Uh, it seemed to come from all sorts of different ages at once. Uh, it, it was kind of weirdly sexual. Uh, there was suddenly a lot of, you know, kind of uh, kind of lusty kind of drugs <laughs> suge- uh, suggestion going on. Um, uh, and it just really kind of got to Parsons. There was some, something about it that really, I don't know, it was something about the unknown about it. I think that was what really attracted him. It was the fact that, that here was something which he didn't understand, but which seemed to suggest that there was something else that could be done, that there was some other world that was you know, taking place alongside his world at the moment. And, and that really kind of drew him in. Uh, he wanted to be part of this kind of group of people who were in kind of discussions with a, a metaphysical world. Uh, that he was not aware of. Uh, and that's how he became interested in, in the OTO and in uh, the teachings which the OTO was were, were kind of built on, which was the teachings of Aleister Crowley. Right. And he's a key figurehead, Aleister Crowley, because you know he was very controversial at the time, but he was kind of you know, kind of what um, Anton LaVey came, became for later on for the Church of Satan, but he was kind of like this figurehead that brought this um, kind of underground belief system to the forefront and people were following him and, and kind of practicing the religion that he created in a way. That's right. Yeah. I mean, uh, Crowley was a really interesting figure for a number of reasons. Uh, I mean, he was one of the first people to bring yoga to the West. He was a, a mountain climber. He was like a champion chess player, but he was, his main claim to fame is as a magician, as a practitioner of magic. And by magic, he didn't mean like stage magic. It meant the idea that you could somehow through force of will and through ritual rites, you could uh, kind of better yourself. You could raise yourself to another level of existence. You could, you know, uh, experience uh, other dimensions, other dimensional beings. You could, you know, use your will, which was his his uh, his great creed was do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Uh, and the idea was you could follow whatever path you chose uh, if you studied this this kind of this kind of hierarchical magic which he propounded. Yeah, and it's really, I mean, because it, it's, in some ways, it's, you know, as all quote-unquote new religions are, they're kind of a hodgepodge of previous ones. And, you know, Gnostic Mass, just to quickly give that to everyone, it's basically like a mystic form of Christianity. And he, there's theosophical elements that are in that, uh, which I actually did an interview, uh, for those listening who want to check this out, with Richard Smoley, who's the editor of Quest, which is the publishing arm of the Theosophical Society. And the headquarters is actually in Wheaton, Illinois, uh, where I grew up just uh, a stone's throw from there. Uh, so, so this is all, you know, this, this information has been around for a long period of time. And it's nothing new. But the thing that I thought was kind of interesting about this is you've got Crowley who invents religion. And mm-hmm. through the OTO, he meets up with L. Ron Hubbard, who ends up creating Scientology. We're not going to be able to get into that, uh, but that's a whole other side thing because he ends up kind of screwing up Parsons' life and using the rules of the OTO to kind of steal his wife uh, at the time. Or uh, Was he married to Betty at the time? It's a complicated situation. Yeah. Betty, Betty was his wife's uh, sister. Uh, Stepsister. A stepsister. Um, But uh, Parsons was married to his wife, had married very young at the age of 19. And because of this kind of, uh, the kind of religion which uh, he followed, this OTO religion, the the followings of Crowley, the idea was that you should be able to sleep kind of with whoever you wanted and not feel jealousy about it. So he ended up sleeping with his own wife's sister. And when he ended up meeting L. Ron Hubbard, L. Ron Hubbard ended up stealing basically Parsons' girlfriend, his wife's sister, away from him. And Parsons found he couldn't quite, 
not be jealous. Right, right. <laughs> um, so, so that Elrond Hubbard, you know, provided this kind of this kind of crux moment in Parsons' life. Yeah, um, very important. Oh well, well so, so what I thought was interesting about that is you've got so Elrond Hubbard creates this religion, and then Parsons kind of tries his hand at it and creates a religion as well. Um, I just found that kind of atmosphere to be very interesting. Everyone was kind of taking their philosophies and and trying to create, uh, you know. A group of people who would follow them. I just found that. To yeah, be no, I th- I think that's it. I mean, like I said, LA was this real kind of crucible of kind of of, of weird beliefs and religions, and nobody knew quite what would stick. And you know, uh, interestingly, when Hubbard joined, you know, he ended up living with Parsons. He performed many magic rituals with him. He suddenly attended some of the OTO rituals that Parsons was performing. When you look at early Scientology, so we're talking Dianetics. A lot of the language is very similar to Alistair Crowley's and Parsons' own teachings of the occult. It's all about betterment of oneself, of ascending a kind of hierarchical ladder. This is all kind of, you know, a lot of kind of cults of the time have this. But it's it's a very uh, interesting how closely it mimics uh, kind of Crowley's own religion. And in many ways, Hubbard created what Crowley and, and Parsons wanted themselves, which was, uh, you know, a, a religion, a, a magical religion, something which could span the world. And, you know, well, Crowley didn't quite do that and Parsons didn't do that. Hubbard did. Well, it's kind of like Crowley was the mystical element. Parsons was the science, the science, science fiction element. And Hubbard meshed both of those two into a science fiction religion. I mean, yeah, it's very, that, that's know. very true. Yeah. I mean, you know, Parsons never saw that that much of a difference. He, I mean, he saw religion and or magic and science as two sides of the same coin you know both were were ways of bettering oneself of escaping the earth of, of moving one's body and minds onto different spheres uh you know different worlds um and yeah i think in some ways hubbard you know who was himself a great science fiction writer back in the 30s um he kind of managed to to draw the essence of 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 parsons thinking and, and kind of put it into a more palatable form, really. Yeah, it's, it's just fascinating stuff. Uh, there's a couple of things I want to touch on really quickly because I just it just adds to the unique element of this entire time period in Parsons' life. But when he first started at the at the OTO, um, there, I, I didn't realize this, but those types of masses were were kind of a safe haven for gay men at the time, which being gay was illegal at the time, and and they had more of an open minded kind of approach to religion and, and togetherness. And so that, there were a lot of uh, gay men who were involved with the OTO. And that Harry Hay, who becomes a future gay rights activist, was an organist for the mess. I mean, <laughs> That's right. Like, how crazy yeah, I mean, is that? Yeah. The, the funny thing is, despite, you know, when everything came out about Parsons' interest in the OTO, it all became like he's a black magician. He's interested in the occult. He's a devil worshiper. But the OTO was actually a very open-minded place. Uh, it was a place where, you know, gay men and women could go without threat of really being, you know, caught by the police. The police at the time were doing a lot of crackdowns on gay bars in, in LA. Um, so it was a kind of safe space. And it was, you know, the great thing about the OTO was it was kind of non-judgmental. It was, you know, we are trying to better ourselves. We don't care if you're black, white, gay, straight. We are on this quest to, to, to better oneself. And yeah, I mean, there were a lot of, you know, gay people, a lot of communists, a lot of free thinkers, a lot of uh, pacifists, people who you know, were often, you know, pushed to the fringes could kind of meet at Parsons house and, and, and kind of bond together. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, for some reason when I read the book, I thought it was just gay men, but I didn't realize it was the whole, um, gay men and women, um, were accepted oh, yeah, there. Yeah. That's very interesting. I mean, yeah, so it's a very open, and that's kind of what happened, especially in that particular time period is, you know, people were very judgmental about this particular group, which is a lot of the reason why I think Parsons gets swept under the rug. But, you know, it's it, it's it's just a society that we live in kind of still a puritanical society, you know. Right. Let's get I want to get quickly get into the to the to the to the ro- the next stage of the rocket. So we have him getting involved in the OTO and this is taking up a lot of his time and he's kind of still working on the rocket. So he's kind of working. He's living two lives, essentially. And so. His rocket work actually gets the attention of the army. We're going into like close to World War II. They they really need uh, space to be able to get planes off the ground quickly. They don't have the runway room to do it in a traditional sense. They're trying to use rockets to um, 
move it up into the air. But what's funny, and this this legacy still continues to this day, is that rockets were there was still a bad word. It was still a silly word to use, not to be taken seriously. So they decided to call it jet propulsion. So uh, it was jet assisted takeoff is what they were researching, which is how the jet propulsion laboratory got its name. So this was really their first thing, but the, they the army wanted a solid fuel. And the solid fuel wasn't really working because it was it would they would make it and then it, the hot and cold temperatures the hot days cold nights was making powder break up and they were becoming very unpredictable. But Parsons kind of cracks this, which leads them down this whole path of opening up the uh, the resources, the financial resources of the army to them. So how did he do that? Well, it's very interesting. Yeah, what they needed was a rocket that would uh, that would burn kind of cleanly and and slowly, like a cigarette, basically burning from one end. Uh, And what they were finding was all their rockets were exploding. They were burning unevenly. They were exploding. They were burning too quickly. And they just couldn't come up with an idea for this. They needed to find some kind of fuel, which would, or some way of packing the powder that would make it, you know, burn evenly. And Parsons was walking along one day and there are two kind of stories about how he came up with this breakthrough. One is that he saw uh, kind of men putting tar on a roof with with brushes. They were tarring a roof. And he looked at that. And then maybe something in his mind also triggered back to uh, the stories he had read about an ancient uh, Greek weapon called Greek fire. And Greek fire was this kind of liquid which burned on water, which was known thousands of years ago for, for destroying fleets at sea. Uh, but nobody knew what it was made out of. And Parsons kind of put two and two together or one on one together. And thought, well, maybe if I use asphalt, uh, if I pour the black powder into asphalt to make a kind of castable powder, uh, maybe that would burn evenly. And so he rushed back to his lab and he got some asphalt and, and he realized that uh, if he could mix that together and pour it while still kind of in its kind of liquid form into a rocket, it would seal without any cracks at all. And there would be an evenly burning rocket. And so it was really just a kind of a moment of inspiration, maybe drawn from just observation maybe drawn from his reading of of ancient historical kind of texts <laughs> but uh parsons came up with basically the castable propellant which is what so many rockets use today as their fuel uh, the the rockets uh, boosters of the uh, of the space shuttle uh, used castable propellants and it was a way of getting a solid fuel rocket to burn cleanly and slowly uh and provide kind of even thrust and that's really what allowed uh, the Suicide Squad to kind of transform into the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And this is, you know, this is not a small breakthrough. I mean, this kind of essentially, you know, if I'm reading this correctly and understanding this correctly, this particular moment, this invention is what legitimized rocket science in a way because it kind of was the first big contract that they had. This kind of, you know, no pun intended, propelled them into the rocket future um, and, and at least from the American side. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I mean, am I right with that in saying that or is that yeah, too? No, no, absolutely. I mean, from, you have to realize that although the Germans were working on their own rockets, nobody in America knew what was going on about this. And uh, basically before this, people were still very wary, as you can tell by the fact they were called jet propulsion rather than rockets, uh, you know, these devices, um, that they were still very wary about rockets. Yet with this single invention, Parsons basically made the rocket feasible. He made it palatable. He made people suddenly say, oh, wait, hold on. If we can do this, we can then do that. Uh, And so he really, I mean, this was the the crux of the moment when the U.S. military and with it, you know, later NASA suddenly realized that rockets, you know, could be useful. They could be tools for more than than scientific uh, science fiction stories. Yeah. Well, and, and so, so they so they do this, and then Parsons starts working on a liquid fuel, which is a little bit easier to do. But this is this is the point in the story that is is kind of tragic in a way. Uh, we go into World War II. Um, you know, I'm just going to fast forward a little bit. Um, we go into World War II. It turns out that the the Nazis have harnessed the power of Werner von Braun, and they have a V2 rocket. So their rocket ships are, I think, four, five or six years ahead of where the U.S. was. And so they know that the rockets are happening. We're in the middle of World War II. But there's a, a little, I guess you call it um, youthful indiscretion that I forgot to mention earlier. And that, especially due to the open-minded nature of the OTO and just the mindset at the time, these guys being young and being 
the world and politics being what it was at this particular time, and I think this is in the 30s, Parsons and some of the members of the Suicide Squad had at least attended communist meetings, although they, some of them – Parsons was not a full-fledged member of the Communist Party. But that you know, that group included, again, brushes with greatness, Frank Oppenheimer, who is the brother of Robert Oppenheimer, who, created, who uh, ends up inventing the atomic bomb, which gets us out of World War II. But that this indiscretion kind of comes back to haunt him as the Red Scare comes by, and they're getting this government work, and then all of a sudden his security clearance uh, is taken away, which kind of destroys the rest of his life in a way. It's true. I, I mean, Parsons had been investigated on a number of occasions. People had said he has a very unusual private life. Maybe you should investigate that. You know, uh, the FBI were investigating him uh, for that, but. What they finally kind of struck gold with was the fact that he had been friends with all these communists. Frank Molina had been a member of the Communist Party back in the 30s. You know, this was a pretty standard thing if you're a student at university to be interested in, you know, talking about socialism. Um, Parsons never thought it would come back to bite him. But just as, uh, you know, he was, uh, you know, really kind of had been acknowledged as being a serious player in the rocketry field, he was stripped of his security clearance and he could no longer kind of work in the field which he himself had created. It was this kind of tragedy. Yeah, I mean, and it's, you know, it's devastating. And Frank Molina, I think, makes the most astute point, um, which is, you know, he ends up going to France to do rocket science after the Suicide Squad kind of go their separate ways. And he has his passport revoked. You know, and he's one of the – he's an American who was working uh, – you know, he working right side by side with Jack Parsons and, you know, with all these breakthroughs. He can't even get back into the country because his passport's revoked for these communist ties. Meanwhile, Werner von Braun, a known Nazi scientist who's been brought over in Project Paperclip, one of the rat lines, if you want to check out another episode that I did on the rat lines and how the Nazis escaped Germany right after World War II. Uh, check out my interview with Peter Lavenda to have more information. But nonetheless, these scientists come there and they're being treated like heroes in a way. And, you know, they're part of this the, the American space program, ultimately. And meanwhile, Frank Molina is stuck in France and can't get back into the country. I think that was a very astute point uh, and shows the hypocrisy most of the times with the American government. It's so true. I mean, the scientific blacklist, which isn't known quite as well as the Hollywood blacklist, was a serious thing. And it rid America of really the founding fathers of rocketry. I mean, Parsons wasn't allowed to work on rockets anymore. Molina was, uh, you know, uh, was out stuck in France. Tien, who we mentioned earlier, you know, went back to China. He, oh, right, he wasn't right, allowed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he ended up starting the Chinese rocket project. Right. Uh, you know, the whole rocket program in China was down to Tien. And really, it was it was very unfair that the, the very guys who made it plausible were thrown out and replaced by, yeah, I mean, Werner von Braun, he was, uh, he was an, an enthusiast for rockets. I don't think he was, I don't know whether he was a really hardcore Nazi member, but still, it's like, why get rid of these homegrown guys when <laughs> you're just, right. you know, going to bring in a, a Nazi rocket scientist to replace them? Um, you know, I feel a little less bad if that's – I don't think that's correct grammar. But I don't feel as bad for CN because when he goes to China, he starts their program and kind of becomes a national hero. So if anything, the blacklist helped him out it's because and he, well, was, and he was totally fine going back to China. Well, no, it's true. But the thing was, uh, if he had stayed in America, if he'd been made welcome in America, who knows how, how much quicker the space program would have happened. Right. Uh, That's it, true. It's, it, you know, it was because he was kept kind of under house arrest for years that he ended up kind of actually hating America and then, you know, being forced, you know, expelled to China. And, and I think that's, I mean, who knows what may have happened, but I don't think America really handled the the, the, the scientific blacklist very well. <laughs> no, no. The, uh, the American history is peppered with lots of situations that the American government did not handle very yeah. well. So <laughs> we don't have any, a lot of time to go in on that. Uh, so we're running out of time here. Uh, we didn't, you know, I tried to hit all of the highlights, but this story is unbelievably fascinating we you know we didn't even really get to um where jack goes deep into magical rituals and believes that he has summoned an elemental who becomes his third wife i guess for lack of a better i'm not even sure if they i think they do end up getting married it all is very confusing um you know we don't talk about the battles within the oto there's this whole drama that goes on there uh the interesting um connections to all the science fiction world we kind of hinted at it but how connected he becomes with isaac amazov uh, asimov and um 
uh, and some of the other big writers of the day. It's just a, an amazing story. Um, you picked a good one here, Gio. <laughs> well, thanks very much, DG. I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it's it, there's a lot there, and uh, you know, the more you look into it, the more it kind of seems to open up ahead of you. So. Uh, no, it sure does. Now, now, as I mentioned earlier, you're a man of a spectrum of interest. So uh, you're, you're going to stick around and talk about some of the other things that you're into, which include uh, historical films about clown prohibition and airport carpeting, right? <laughs> if you want me to, I'd be more than happy to talk. Abs- absolutely. So stick around for that. Um, but, but so how can people get in touch with you? Um, you have books coming out. Uh, you know, you've got lots of articles all over. How can people find your stuff and you as a human being? Well, you know, I'm, I'm there on Twitter and in the social media. Um, I, you know, write for various magazines. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm around. And, you know, Strange Angel is uh, – is uh, fortunately being made into a, a TV series um, as oh, we wow. speak. Oh, wow. No kidding. So, yeah, it's due to appear on CBS All Access uh, in June. Um, it's being made by Ridley Scott's production company. So uh, if you want to learn more about Parsons, uh, you, you'll be able to not only read my book, but see him, him in, uh, in live Technicolor. Oh, that's incredible. And I'll have links to all that stuff on your bio page on the website. Uh, George Pendle, the pen, Grand Liege, Thank you so much for sitting down and talking to me about all this stuff. Thank you. Uh, And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. A Parientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to learn more about this episode, the guest, and to listen to all the others. Plus, you can follow the show on social media. You'll find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Pinterest pages, all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. You can also subscribe to the newsletter, which will give you updates on the show, behind the scenes type of stuff. And speaking of subscribing, Do not forget to subscribe to Fascinating Nouns on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. And if you like this show, you'll love all my other stuff. Go to Daniel J. Glenn to learn more, including my newest podcast about science fiction becoming a reality. It's called Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies, Rocket Scientist, Engineer, biologist, take pop culture things like the T-1000 or the Everlasting Gobstopper and teach you how to make them in real life. It's an incredible show. F-G-G-G-B-T for that. Daniel J. Glenn for everything that I do. And of course, as always, thank you for listening. End of transmission.